0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, take a look here at Mark in chapter um, 7, end of chapter 6, going into chapter 7. Let me just review here to make sure you see what the argument of Mark is that you saw in the first few chapters what is called the offering of the kingdom to Israel by his words and by his miracles, by John the Baptist pointing at him, by God speaking at his baptism. This is the king. Kingdom was offered. Then you saw the kingdom rejected. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This man does his miracles by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, that's all, that's all. And as a result, you saw the kingdom offered, you saw the kingdom rejected. And then you saw the kingdom postponed. He did a mystery, something that wasn't in the Old Testament. I'm just going to take the lowly of Israel as a remnant. The leaders don't want me. I'm going to take the lowly. And then I'm going to take somebody else. And I'm going to combine them into one body. And that is the Gentiles. We saw the beginning of the church. And so I'm going to do something you've never seen. And from that point on, he begins the training of the 12. And that's why when you read these chapters that we're reading, it's close to home. Because this is usen's. The, this is the, the theology, the moral code, the worldview of the church. And so the kingdom is offered, rejected, and it is postponed because we're going to see at the end of Mark that it is, uh, someday there will be an appearing. It is called the second coming. And there you will have the literal establishment of the kingdom upon the earth. And so we are what theologians call the intercalation, we're the parentheses Between the rejection and the cross and the second coming, we're this little mystery of the church to make Israel jealous by looking at us and to display uh, God's name throughout all of the earth. Well, in chapter uh, 7, you're going to see lesson 3 on the training of the 12. The first one was the feeding of the 5,000. You guys are going to give the multitude something to eat. It's not going to be you. It's going to be me, Jesus. But they're not going to see me. They're just going to see you. And I'm going to be behind the scenes. It would read like this later. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples. You baptize them and you teach. And I'm with you. No one's going to see me. But I'm going to feed the multitude. And we're going to call out to people and nurture them on the truth of God. So that's first. God, I can't do this. What do you have? This is what I have. Just give it to me. Just give it to me and let me see what I can do with this. And then the second lesson was what happens whenever you head off to a world mission. Storms at sea. Amen? Storms at sea. You're going to be opposed. And you're going to find yourself sometimes in something that is beyond your ability to deal with. But I know where you are, and I'm praying for you, and I see you, though you can't see me. And I'm coming to you. And it's going to be a test. Do you know who I am? And you can get out of the boat and you can know my power. And even if you sink, I'm there to grab you. And when I get in the boat, it's over when I say it's over. And we're going to get to where I said. So I'm going to be there. Now, the third lesson is right here. It is called, What is True Spirituality? We're going to see a return to the Old Testament model of what true spirituality is. In verse, at the end of chapter 6, those four verses, you see Jesus surrounded by seekers, those who desperately want to see him and touch him and to know his power. And so we see him surrounded by seekers. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him. When they had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then you see the challenge in verse 5. Why do your disciples not wash or walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And so we see here a challenge. And this is the scenario that is going to be for the next 20 centuries. You're going to see the crowd divided into two groups. Those who will gather for his touch and to hear what he says. Amen. That's us. You're going to see believers. But then you're going to see him surrounded by enemies. And they will look at us and make an accusation of him. And so... Just as when Jesus was born, a fellow named Simeon took him and said, this child is appointed for the rise of many in Israel and for the fall of many. He will be a sign to be opposed. And Mary, someday a sword will pierce your soul. And so this boy is going to divide humanity. And how they treat him is what they think of God. Because he's going to be a Simeon, a sign A signal from heaven that this is who I am. And so people are going to see him as an aroma of death, others as an aroma of life. He's going to be the great divider of humanity. Well, in 2 through 5, that was the challenge that was brought to Jesus. Uh, Your disciples, verse 5, why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders? The charge was this. Your men are irreligious. And the reason that they are irreligious is they do not follow, verse 5, traditions. Not that they are disobedient to the word. Oh, no. Not that they are immoral men. But they don't walk according to tradition. And it is a tradition in verse 3. The Pharisees and... You see the next three words? All the Jews. Your guys don't walk according, not to the Bible, but what has been added to the Bible. They don't do it. And they walk contrary to all the nation. It's an interesting point about Jesus. Jesus will not exceed what is written. You ever see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? We're not to exceed what is written. You don't canonize what isn't in the Bible. You don't make something true the Bible doesn't say is true. There's two ways that you depart from the Scripture. One is you canonize and call as true what isn't there. That's what the Pharisees do, And then you do what the Sadducees do. You deny what the Bible does say. Both of those ways are what you would call uh, liberal theology. That you depart to the right or you depart to the left. You become a Pharisee or you become a Sadducee. And if you depart to the right and try to make something Bible that isn't Bible, in time you're going to lessen the authority of Scripture and you will then start denying what the Bible does say. You'll replace the Bible with what you think is true. Can that ever happen? Yes, all the time. And that's what had happened to the entire nation It's believed that this happened during the intertestamental time between Malachi and Matthew when Israel was displaced and surrounded by Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. That they are not, they don't have a king, they don't have a a political setup that is autonomous, they're under the rule. It began what Jesus called the, the times of the Gentiles. And so, to keep themselves in solidarity, they had to take the Old Testament and determine what it meant and how you had to keep it to make sure that you were separated from the rest of the nations. And they went beyond the Bible. And the guys that did it were called the separated ones, and that in Aramaic is pronounced Pharisee. And so they were trying to protect the nation by keeping it pure. And they probably meant well, but it got to where? Well, much like Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, to where you didn't know the Bible, you just knew what the traditions were, and you did what the priest told you to do. And so Jesus will not exceed what is written. Y'all all all make a note of that. The fact that people say it's true doesn't make it true. It's what the Bible says. Y'all remember a guy named Luther? Martin Luther said... Unless it can be demonstrated to me from the scriptures that I am wrong, here I stand. I can do no other. And so you've got to show me from the Bible that what I said was wrong. And so Luther stood, Christ stands. And I want you to notice that in verse 3, it is against all the culture. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be biblical. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be counterculture. You will have to go against the prevailing culture. It's interesting that in Christ's obedience, his men became just like him, and they took the heat that he takes. And so, why don't you guys do this? And so, in verse six and following, Christ is going to set the standard of what real biblical spirituality is. Are you unspiritual because you don't wash your hands before you eat? That would exclude all of the male world, all right? I can't. Is she here? Okay. Whenever I come in from weightlifting or working in the garden. And what do you do? You get into the refrigerator. Right, right. And here it comes. Did you wash your hands? Yes. It's called a lie, all right? But I'm Orthodox. And so this is the challenge. And in verse 6, Jesus answers the challenge. Make a note. Never enter into a spiritual argument with an omniscient person, okay? You always lose. And so he said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, verse 5. Why do your disciples, verse 6, why do you never challenge a divine being? You, my disciples are not the problem. The problem is you. You hypocrites. That, the word hypocrite is from a word that means to mask. It was a word, hupokrina, or cresis or something like that. And it means to speak out from under. In those days of actors, remember they, they'd have the masks, and they would bring the mask up. And so you would speak out from under the mask. And so the term, to speak from under a mask, got to be the word hypocrite Jesus says you phonies you actors he says you act religious but you're not the people honors me with their lips their heart is far away in vain do they worship teaching as doctrines the precepts of men He says, your problem is not my disciples. Your problem is you. And the problem with you is your heart. Your heart is dirty. And then he says in verse 7, you replace divine scripture with man-made rules. In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You replaced divine revelation with human standards and in verse eight as a result you remove the authority of the bible neglecting the commandment of god you hold to the tradition of men as i said whenever you canonize what the bible doesn't say in time you're going to forget what the bible does say and you're going to have a people that well during the middle ages Uh, one of the books that was on the index of forbidden books was the Bible. You weren't allowed to read the Bible because you might form opinions outside of the church. And so you've canonized tradition, but nobody knows the Bible. And so in verse 9 through 13, Christ says, let me give you an example. you've got a command from God to honor your father and mother. But some of you don't wanna take care of your father and mother because it costs money to take care of them. Is there any truth to that? Okay, it takes money. And so what you do is you found a way to launder your money. You simply take your money and call it korban, given to God. And now you say, sorry mom, Sorry, Dad, we can't help you because we're so devoted to God. And Jesus said, You think I can't see that, what you're doing? And verse uh, 13, Invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So he says, boys, I see exactly what you're doing. And in verse 14 through 16, he says, let me correct you. This is what purity is. It's not your hands. It's your heart. And 14, listen to me, all of you. He calls the crowd together. It's always a problem whenever you argue with Jesus and then in the next phrase, you're made an illustration. (laughs) So he says, come here, everybody up. Take a knee, take a knee. See them guys? (laughs) Okay. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Let's turn the lights on here. You know, he's not going to say anything new. He's going to return to the Old Testament standard. Y'all remember in the Old Testament, you had... Adam and Eve sinned, and they try to cover it with fig leaves. God says, no, it's going to take the blood of a sacrifice. Drop your fig leaves. You're trying to hide. you got fig leaves. You're blaming each other. It's not going to work. Drop your fig leaves. Now you take the, what I offer you. And then they had set up sacrifice as a, an institutionalizing of what God did in the garden. And you had two brothers, Cain and Abel. Abel offered up the firstlings of his flock, like God did. Cain worked the ground. He just ripped up some weeds and threw it on the altar. And God, it says, did not look upon them. He said, no. And Cain got mad. And God said, why are you angry? Do right. And your countenance will be lifted up. That's the easiest counseling appointment of all time. Why you sad? You're in sin. Do right, be happy. Thank you. That's $50 right there. Yeah. Easy counseling. And so Cain slew Abel. And so we're going back to this is proper religion. It's not just going through a sacrifice. It's your heart. What's your heart say? Uh, And over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So Christ is returning. He's reforming. He's coming back to the Bible. Sola Scriptura. He is a biblical purist. Let's come back to the Bible. David Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come. And the roll of the book it's written for me to do thy will, O God. David said at Psalm 40, this is what God wants. Not a dead animal. He wants a living person. All right. That's, and who is the ultimate person who offered himself up? Jesus. So this is what God wants. So we're returning here to the Garden of Eden, to David and the like. Uh, The correction is in verse 15, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. The things which proceed out of the man defile him. Meaning it's not dirt on your hands that gets to your soul. It is sin on your soul that we've got to deal with. It's not your food that goes into you down your alimentary whatever and gets deposited outside. It never gets to your heart. It's what what it symbolizes. It's a clean heart that I want. And so in verse 17 when he had left the crowd and entered the house. Now he's gonna have a QA and a and call these men to him. Do y'all see what the correction is here? It goes like this. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging symbol. If I know all mysteries and all knowledge, but I don't have love. I, he says, uh, it profits me nothing. If I give my body to be burned, and give all my possessions to feed the poor. But I don't have love. He said, I am nothing. And so he says, it's got to get to your heart. You want another text? Romans 14. The kingdom of God does not consist in food or drink, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. They were having conflicts in the Roman church between probably Jew and Gentile about foods and certain days. Can you eat at Red Lobster? Okay. Now, you say yes, but Saul from the tribe of Issachar has never eaten shrimp. Okay, now are you wrong and is he right? That's not New Testament, it's Old Testament. So, do we keep Old Testament law? And Paul said, and, and they would not, they, they probably would worship on Saturday because they had never done a Sunday. Uh, do we uh, try to keep like Sabbath years or the, the day of atonement. Are we supposed to do that? One may re, day, man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be convinced in his own thinking. The king, he says, who cares? The kingdom of God is not food and it's not days. It's righteousness. It's peace and then joy in the Holy Spirit. And so get your heart right. Okay. How about this? The Sermon on the Mount. When you give, don't make a big production out of it so everybody can applaud you. You do it in private and don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You make this between you and God. And when you pray, don't stand out there and draw a crowd to let everybody know how spiritual you are. You go into your closet and your father who sees in secret will bless you. And he said, don't think you're going to be heard for your many words like the Gentiles and all of their repetitions. Just pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed, that kingdom come. Keep it, just get to the point down there. And when you fast, don't lay out and groan so everybody can see you. He said, anoint yourself. Don't let anybody know but you and God. Now, to you and I, that's real interesting. But in the Middle East, religion is a show. It's a show, Arab and Jew. Christ said, you let this be between you and God. Where do you get this, Jesus? Garden of Eden, David, Isaiah. It's you and God that have a relationship. How about this? Don't try to take the speck out of somebody's eye before you take the log that is out of yours. Then you'll see clearly... To handle the Bible for this guy. You deal with you. Woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe dill and mint and cumin. You ever tried to tithe dill? I have no idea what that means. But you're down here with these little old spices, trying to get a tenth of them. He says, you get meticulous and fastidious over this. But uh, you'll devour widows' houses. You like the chief seats at the, uh, at the banquet. You like the best seats in the synagogue. But inside, you're full of corruption. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're all clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're a thief. And so Christ was returning to a, 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 a true biblical model. Okay. Incidentally, it will get you killed. If you do that, and it did with him, and so this is what's coming out of him. He's a reformer. Let's get back to who God is. Well, in verse seventeen through twenty-three, let's have a Q and A. He left the crowd and entered the house, and his disciples questioned him. And Jesus said in verse eighteen, "Are you so lacking in understanding? Can Christians be dull to the truth every once in a while? Yeah." Just look around. We tend to do that. We, very simple truths. Are you lacking an understanding? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside can't defile him? 19, because it doesn't go to his heart. It's your heart. See also in verse 6, their heart is far away. Boys, don't worry about your food. And in so doing that, at the end of verse 19... He declared all foods clean. Mark is letting the Roman audience know that Jesus just put an end to the old covenant of dietetic law. Because when you're God, you can do that. So we are now into a greater understanding. Paul says in Colossians, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, which are just shadows of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. God wants a clean heart. Israel was given symbols, clean bodies, clean uh, clothes, clean foods. And it was trying to teach about a clean heart. And so in verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. In other words, your heart needs attention. Here in just a little bit we're going to see this. They're going to head back across the Sea of Galilee after feeding the 4,000 and having seven baskets full left over. And the disciples are going to start worrying that they don't have any bread. And Jesus is going to say beware not that you don't have a great amount of physical bread. He says beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I'm concerned that you might have a little bit of corruption in you because what does leaven do? It grows. You got to, like Barney says, when do you nip it (laughs) in the bud? You better get it early and the only way you can can deal with leaven is called self-honesty and examination. You and God have to walk together. And the uh, young guns, I've put 800 guys through young guns. Four are in prison. Four are in prison. Because stuff that started that they never dealt with. And they went to prison. And so, verse 20. It will defile you. And that's what Jesus said to them. Beware of the leaven. Don't worry about your income. That's not going to ruin you. What's going to ruin you is you've got stuff you're doing in the dark. Because it's not, that's a living organism. And it's going to start in you. So you better catch it. And in verse 21, from within, out of, what's your next two words? The heart. Verse 19, his heart. Verse 6, their heart, you, them, there, all of us. You better deal with your heart. You want a great verse? Psalm 139, search me, O God, and see if there be in me any hurtful way, any anxious thought. God, check me out. That's holiness right there. What are we supposed to do whenever we have the Lord's Supper? What's it say, do? Examine yourself, test yourself. No one knows but you, where you and God get there. And so Christ is bringing us back to true piety, true spirituality. And in verse 21, this is what the leaven's going to produce, and he mentions about 13 things that have nothing to do with the signs of Old Testament Levitical cleanliness. They all have to do with moral law. Let me give you a little lecture here on law and grace. The law consisted of uh, things you ate, things you wore had to be clean. your body, if you got a br- outbreak, you had to wait and see that it went away, clean body, and your house. You had to have a clean house. If you had any fungus among us, all right, we had to deal with it. And so you dealt with those. That's dietetic cleanliness and physical cleanliness. That was terminated into the higher understanding of what it signified. It signified that these are, Paul said, they are shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. And so God wants. What that taught, he wants a clean heart. So once you get your heart right, you don't have to worry about shrimp and lobster. Okay. You'll still get to heaven, maybe quicker. Okay. So don't worry. Because a lot of you guys from Louisiana have been worried, all right, about walking with God. So first we're going to deal with your heart. And then you had ceremonial law the Sabbath you shut down. Every seventh Sabbath, six feasts during the year and one fast. They all signified something. They all signified something. And that was something about God. When you know Christ, you have the ultimate sacrifice. We don't have to offer sacrifices. We don't need a physical temple. We don't need a physical priesthood because the ultimate sacrifice has taken place in the cross. And so we put an end to ceremonial law. We put an end to hygienic law. Uh, There was also what is called um, geopolitical law. Israel was not just a spiritual group of people. They were a political system. They were a civil legal system. They had land. And so there was laws about land. And if certain guys did certain things, they were put to death. Now we can learn from that, but we're not a geopolitical people. So we don't put people to death on that. We honor the powers that be that are above us, and that is the government, Romans 13. And so that passed away because we don't have a physical nation anymore. We have a spiritual people. But then there's moral law. So you've got hygienic law, ceremonial law, civil law. All of those passed away because they're fulfilled in Jesus. How about moral law? You don't have to look at the 613 moral injunctions. That's how many there are. You don't have to keep a list. All you've got to do is to do the one thing God requires of men. What must I do to work the works of God? This is the work of God. To believe in him whom God hath sent. To be reborn. And once you are reborn, all of these moral injunctions come together together and the law upon your heart that is called the rebirth. And so moral law is not simply set aside, it is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul said the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor. And so those, that's what law is fulfilled in Christ. I don't have to worry about ceremony, about hygiene, I shouldn't have said that to our high school kids. (laughs) Brush your teeth, all right. Uh, Ceremony, hygiene, civil law, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And moral law is fulfilled in Jesus. If I will love God and love my neighbor, I will do all that's required of me. So that's why we are not under law, but we're under grace. It's a marvelous system. It's the same as when you drive, you can have a, a, uh, a map, trying to follow that map. That's a good way. What's better is to have a GPS, is to have an English woman. <laughs> no, Tom, don't go there. You'll die. <laughs> follow your wife. <laughs> okay. And so we have a GPS. It's called the new birth. We're free. Well, in verse 21, out of your heart comes all of these things. 23, they proceed from within. And you notice what he says they do? They defile. Verse 18, they defile. How many of you, when you were in college, had courses in these? That somebody gave you a course in economics, in history, in business, in management. But did you ever have one in sexual purity? Did you ever have one in curbing your tongue? Did you ever have one on child rearing? How about one, a course, on submitting to authority? The eye that mocks its mother and scorns its father the birds of the air will pluck it out. You're gonna die, we're gonna put you on a tree and the birds are gonna pluck your eye out because you were a bad boy. Anybody do that in college? Anybody study that? You don't teach morality in college because that demands a standard. God and the universities will not allow that. And so you, you study meaningless things that will help you make money, but they can't help you make a life. You can only get that from God. So if we had to do all over again, we would have, you know, classes through college in patience, submission to authority, kindness, curbing your tongue, love of the lowly. And then at the end, they would give you a history book. Say, here, read this. It's full of interesting stuff right here. Read this English book. You'll find it enjoyable. But that's what Jesus says. This will mess your life up if you don't get this straight. It'll mess you up. And so they proceed out of a man. Uh, John Owen, great reformer. He said, the heart is a sink of deadly corruptions. Stuff just sinks down to the bottom of just nastiness. And so we have to deal with our hearts. Paul said, uh, I know that nothing good indwells me that is in my flesh the wishing is present in me the doing of the good is not Romans 7 Mark Twain said quit smoking no problem I've done it dozens of times (laughs) Jeremiah the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful who can know it it makes no sense you can't figure out why you do what you do? Because we're just sinners. I would tell you the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a great Presbyterian lecturer, preacher, and he was teaching on total depravity—that man is a born rebel against God—that only Christ can cure. And he talked about his little daughter. Her name was Tiffany, and he was trying to teach her not to suck her thumb. And uh, she had a, a nanny that was, whenever he traveled travel, that would help raise Tiffany. And uh, the nanny had taught her a little, she was a French nanny, and so I had taught her to do this. And then you went behind the, the curtain. And she had taught her how to do the can-can and then go behind the curtain. And so Donald Gray Barnes House said, I walked into Tiffany's room after we had been telling her, don't suck your thumb. You're going to get crooked gums. I don't know. Why does a kid not to suck his thumb? On her? And he walked in the room, and the sunlight was coming down on Tiffany's little bed. And he said, You could see a string of saliva from her mouth to her thumb. And he said, My eyes met this three year old's eyes. And then she looked and saw the glistening string of saliva. And he said that little girl immediately went, dun, 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 And Barnhouse would say, what would make that child that adept at deceit? She didn't say, father, I have sucked my thumb again. I must be beaten. She doesn't say that. She hides it. And she doesn't just hide it. She gives an illusion to throw you off. He said, that is a chain of thought worthy of a Cambridge scholar. And my child did it intuitively. Why? Her mother. All right. She was conceived in sin. Can y'all all identify? You never have to teach your kid, don't share the ball keep it for yourself. We are sinners. Well, let me give you a little application to this. There has always been within the faith a tension between five areas. There's a tension between the ideal and the real. The ideal is that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And our standard of holiness is Jesus. He is our ideal. And then I've got the real that even though I am declared righteous, would you all agree we're not there yet? We're not there yet. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I do not regard myself as having attained to it or to become complete. But I press on. And so there is a tension between what is called positional sanctification and progressive. I am righteous in God and holy in God, and I am loved in God, and I am his child, but I'm not there yet, okay? It would be like if you had a father that was a marvelous, great, famous person, and you just idolized him, and you knew that he loved you and would never, ever not love you. And he was your standard of manhood, but you knew that you weren't there yet. So there was a tension between the ideal and the reality of who I am. And there is that in Christianity. We're not there yet. We're always trying to close that gap more and more between what we are and what God has made us. That's good, that's a tension. And then there's a tension, number two, between truth and life. I know theology proper about God. I know about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I know about the doctrine of Christ. I know about the doctrine of salvation. I know about the doctrine of inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. I know that. My problem is life is driving the speed limit. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah. My, I've had men before. I said, do you struggle with lust? No. Okay. Do you struggle with lying? Yes, you do. Okay. And so there is a tension between truth and life. That's why at my dear seminary, Dallas Seminary, the mark of a Dallas man in the old days was that you were an astute, biblical, systematic theologian that also could not keep relationships and have a bad marriage. All right. Because there was always this tension between what we knew and how we lived, between doctrine and obedience. When Paul writes a letter, The first half of the letter is always belief and then the second half is behavior. First he gets your mind right. Now he's got to get your feet right. And so we're always going to have that tension between what I know and how I live. And that's okay. And thirdly, there is a tension between discipline and development, particularly in Protestants. I know the discipline. I read my Bible. I tithe a tenth. I attend church. I am in a Bible study. So I do all of those disciplines. My problem is humans, is loving humans and of being, keeping my mouth shut when I shouldn't, or that's not right, when I need it. Forget, you know what I'm talking And so loving someone is going to be the problem. And so there's that tension between discipline and obedience of getting it into my heart. Uh, And there is a tension, number four, between religion and relationship. There are two acts of religion that the church is to do, always. Whenever you get saved, you are baptized. Do you baptize infants if they are repentant? Okay, no, you baptize sinners. And so uh, a Christian, if, don't come fleeing to me if you haven't been baptized, but it, you're, uh, when a guy gets saved, he gets baptized. Now, that's simply a sign that I have died, I have been raised up, and I am washed. I'm a new creation. And that's all well and good, but do you live like that? like a new creation that that you hate sin and you're cleansed from sin and you're new to serve God. Forget the sign is the reality there in you. Can you be a baptized sinner that is unconverted? All the time. And then secondly, there is the sign, the ordinance of communion. Do this as oft as you will. And so we receive in our hands what happened to us Someone came and died for us, and we taste of the Lord and see that he's good. But I make sure that I am not one of those that, like Judas, he that has broken bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You only eat with people that you're in fellowship with. Amen? So am I in fellowship with God? You ever watch Gunsmoke? The, the truly Christian Western, okay. Matt Dillon is my hero. Uh, he just beats everybody down. He's six foot seven. Okay. But Matt Dillon, whenever a guy is a bad guy, a oh, good guy, can I get you a drink? Matt, well, sure. He'll get a drink. But if you're a bad guy, hey, Sheriff, can I buy you a drink? No. No, no, thank you. I'm not going to drink with you because I'm not sure about your heart. See? No. I'm not going to mess with you. And so when we eat with God, we check our hearts. It's our heart. And so there's a tension between religion and relationship. And lastly, there is a tension between what you would call uh, service and spirituality. Can you serve God and do go, activities and do activities that are very righteous. Be a greeter, be a teacher, be a uh, someone that cooks for church dinners, be a usher, and yet at the same time have your heart bad. One time we had a guy in our church that was a worked the parking lot committee, and he would get people to not move this flow, but move around this one. And someone came too far, and I remember seeing him throw himself. On the car hood. Come on. No! I said, come here. Michelle, you can't do that, okay? And so, that's not the way you do it. I remember one time at the church that I was at, we had Methodist communion where you'd come out, you'd do it, then you move out the other way. Anybody grow up Methodist? You'd come out, you'd sit, and have communion, then move out the other way. And... Uh, we had a guy that was, that, that was a particular packed in Sunday, and people weren't moving fast enough. And so the guy's name was Johnny, I'll never forget, it, an older fella. And people would kneel, and they would say, the pastor would pray, and he would step in there. Let's go, come, 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 come on in, come on, get on in there. And we were all just kind of, yeah. Somebody, I don't know who it was. It was beautiful. Somebody went. Mm-mm. We know if it's communion or we getting dipped, you know. Mm-mm. My wife started laughing. She started laughing at it. Go, go, Get them kids on. Now, y'all remember a story? You ready? A couple of ladies called Mary and Martha. Jesus comes into the house. If Jesus came into your house, would you have some questions? Oh, she sits at his feet. Just like this. Mary's always at Jesus' feet. She sits there and listens. She's got a sister named Martha. And she is the patron saint of all Protestants. Okay. She is going to work. And so she is serving. Here comes Jesus and his 12 guys. I mean, 13 people show up for lunch. Okay. Okay. And she is distracted, it says. Distracted. Disattracted. Why did Christ come into the house? It wasn't just to get something to eat. It was to be with these people. She's disattracted. She's serving. She's vacuuming. She's, get your feet up. She's cleaning everything up. Did you floss? Get back and floss. This is Jesus. She's meticulous. She's full of energy. Okay. And after a while, she just comes in and says, Lord, just interrupts the Bible study. Excuse me. Does it bother you that my sister is sitting on her tuckus while I'm doing all this vacuuming? Tell her, Lord, here's what you're going to do to get up and shut her quiet time down and get over and help me. (laughs) Isn't that so? Can we ever do that? Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Tell Mary, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. Tell Mary, Martha, shut up. (laughs) Martha Only a few things are necessary, really one. If I come to your home, what's the one thing I have to have? Dr. Pepper. Pepper. Some cool ranch Doritos would be nice. If I come to your house, I come to your house for you, I want you. If I want to see my buddy Doug and Michelle, and I sit down with Doug and Michelle, and Michelle is just running. Lift your feet, Tommy. You're a holy man. You're in the FCA Hall of Champions. So I've got a <laughs> Michelle, Michelle, whoa. I can eat anywhere. Uh, this house is cleaner than my house Well, this is a real clean house, okay? I don't need vacuuming, and I I need you. There's only one Michelle. Sit down, Michelle. Doug, get up and (laughs) do something, all right? Say, if I come into a house, it's for you. And that's what he said. He said, Martha, he wasn't nasty with her. He appreciated her work. Who was it? The sons of, oh, Rudyard Kipling. The sons of Mary lay their burdens on the Lord, who lays them on the sons of Martha. They get stuff done. And so he didn't get nasty. He just says, Martha, your priorities. Martha, only a few things are necessary. Really, Martha, just one. And that's you. And Mary's chosen the good part. Serving is part of it, but it starts with what's a delight. And that's you and I just talking. He that opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll fellowship with him and him with me. And it will not be taken away from her. Tell her to get up. No, I would like you to sit down. If your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep becomes your downfall. You're going to get a Martha's complex. You're going to get meaner than a junkyard dog. All right. And so, I don't want yours. I want you. I want you. Are you with me? I want you. Father in heaven, we, all of us, have to stop right here. Because our heart does gather lint. It gathers dust. And we all have to stop and go to your word and see the truth, and then stop and go, Lord, forgive me. I need to wipe my feet here before I come into your house. And to say, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass. And I need daily food. Give us this day our daily bread. But I need to recognize your Father, that you're in heaven, you're holy. And you are to institute your kingdom right now. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so, Lord, help us in this tension. As Christ has brought us back to in the training of the 12, this is religion. It's not Mardi Gras. It's not Fat Tuesday where you do all your bacchanalian romps. And then you have Ash Wednesday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday now, it's got to start in your heart. You just can't go through the, the uh, gyrations of religion. Your heart has to be right. And so help us, God. There's no trick to this. There's no list of four things you need to do. You can do all the right things and have a wrong heart. And so deal with our hearts, we pray. Lord, I pray for one of the families here that their boy is heading off uh, in the military, our own Cody Rose, off to places that uh, are going to get hot. And so we pray that you might watch over him and protect him and bring him back to us safe and sound with all of, his, all of the boatload that he had with him. And Father, if there's one person here that has been trying their best to clean their house without Jesus, I pray if they're a non-Christian that you might bring them to the cross where you came and met us. And if they're a Christian that's doing all the right things and losing friends while they're doing them, that they would check out their heart. And we'll ask all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.